Hello and welcome to our next podcast episode where we're going to look at donuts or the difference between good and delicious. Hello and welcome to Humanising, the podcast that allows you to understand how you've been programmed by both evolution and culture so you can liberate any behaviour you choose and be who you'd like to be today. I'm Ginny. I'm the map holder. I'd like to introduce Marheen. Hello. Marheen is the explorer. And together we will journey through this programming so you can understand through the questions you ask and definitely the questions Marheen asks, how to liberate yourself and be the most amazing person that you choose to be. I wanted to do this episode for a very particular reason because I am quite sure everyone can relate to the fact that they've walked past a plate of donuts or fairy cakes or something which is sat on the side and they've gone and eaten one or eaten half of one before they went, oh, perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't have done that or I'm not supposed to be eating that sort of thing now. And I wanted to stop right there and say, it's not your fault. It's not that you don't try hard enough. It's not that you don't know that you shouldn't be eating a donut every day, even if they are sat on the side. My husband's dreadful for that. He buys cakes and they just sit on the side and I have to walk past them every day. And then some days I fail. See, I'm talking about myself for failure. And I'm not, because what I think one of those amazing things about this brilliant organic carbon-based system we sit within is it is designed it has rules and they're programmed right deep down dark in our dna and one of those is the fact that fat and sugar are really useful things for our body okay but when this beautiful system was designed they weren't around a lot okay they were really really scarce so if you think sweet sources in the natural environment you get honey if you've got bees and you learn how to look after bees, but that's technically farming. And you get certain sweeter types of roots and they're a very great source of carbohydrate. Now, the, the white sugar um, or sugars we eat come from a long manufacturing process. We'd never have had. In fact, we've only ha had it for about hmm, a couple of hundred years. So your body goes, you be. I need that and I need it now and I keep needing it because you never know, this might be the last one you ever see. So we're talking about storing these things, right? We're talking about being driven to eat this stuff because it actually becomes a store for well, our it, body. Yes, it's either a store, and an energy it's store. energy, it's energy. And it was very fast and easy to get hold of in certain types of sugars, even in so carb, certain type of carbohydrate metabolism releases sugar quite quickly. And some of those have been around for a very long time, as in for hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years. Um, and exactly the same with bees and honey. They were very good energy sources. So your body needs them because our bodies actually are designed to work in almost famine situations. So you imagine that poor little body when it's given these huge areas of stuff, your brain really does go eat, eat. Oh, no, it does other weird stuff to you. 
which is, did you know there's huge amounts of experiments are going to show if you sit down with other people and eat, you eat more. Yeah, that kind of social bonding is what we talked about, wasn't it? The sitting together, eating, and it can go on. Certainly, I know with my friends and my family, you can be at a table for hours, kind of what we experience here, I think, at Easter and Christmas and things like that, where there's always another plate of something being brought out or a bowl of something or the quality street is opened or, you know, shout out to quality street. (laughs) Well, totally. Um, Uh, Because... Again, even a lot of the, if you look at the history of a lot of those feasts or where they come from, because you didn't have a lot of food for most of uh, a lot of the year, you would have feasts and celebration. We've just got loads of food around at the moment. We have more food for the majority of people than we've ever had before. Now, there are times when it's food is comfort, right? So we can talk about um, hot, sweet cup of tea. Yes, but you see, I still I. I'm not sure. You know, food in in essence is fuel. What we attach to those things is what can drive some other types of behaviour. So on one hand, yes, we know if it's fat and sugar, you are liable to want to eat it more and you'll almost do it automatically if it's in front of you. And because it is good, was good for us when it was in a very short supply, your brain does this wonderful thing where it makes you feel good when you eat things like that. So it releases things like serotonin. It releases things like dopamine. So it actually makes you want to eat it more. So mm. if you then get into the cycle, again, this is about programming. So, you know, it's first of all, the program you cannot undo is the fact that when your body was designed, this stuff wasn't around. We move today when it's around a lot and we know we perhaps we know consciously we shouldn't eat it all the time. And then we go and do this thing where we sit there and it makes us feel good if we do it. And if we then attach that to food makes me feel better. Because we've it's it's associated in our heads with family or security or nice places to be, then we can eat food when we get emotional. Because it's like a salve. It's literally releasing things that make your brain feel better. And that's difficult. Is that a bad thing? It is if you over-emotion... Well, when I say a bad thing, I don't like thinking anything's bad. I think it can have an impact on you if you emotionally eat. So you'll eat when you're sad or upset or what's it, just to because your body unconsciously is you don't know that your body releases these things that make you feel happier when you eat certain types Mm -hmm. of food because it was good for us to do that so that's why the body wants us to do it but if you've got in the situation where it's releasing you because you don't know all those things because they sit in your subconscious like all the things we we do but you know you feel better if you eat cake or jam or hot buttered toast or even hot sweet tea and you know it's made you feel better, you are you want to do it more when you're stressed or upset. Yeah, there's the comfort element of that that you kind of reproduce. And yeah. then when you try and stop it, because let's say you can't get into those genes or someone tells you you're overweight or whatever, no matter who you are, you will then start to fight yourself because your body feels good when you eat those things and now you're telling yourself that you can't do it. So you are literally in this fight 
with your subconscious because it makes you feel good when you eat these feel good makes you feel better but i'm not supposed to do that because it's not good for me for whatever reason but then you'll end up in this fight and one of the things i think is really insidious is not knowing that it's not you so i started with that it's the fact that your brain's doing this to yourself you can then choose to go okay it's i know this is good or this releases those chemicals so that makes me feel better but other things release those chemicals exercise for example i know that's really boring and people always say that but it showed exercise or being in groups doing exercise because it's really you know a lot of the time it's better for us to do things in groups makes it will reduce release endorphin and also serotonin you know so being in those groups helps you feel better but i mean it's usually easier to reach the biscuit tin. <laughs> a bit closer. If you, in our house, it's definitely an awful lot closer. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted it. It's, I'm, I'm, I don't mind what people do with this. I just want them to know you didn't fail. By eating the donut. Yeah. It's... You, or your, your version yeah, thereof, yeah. You didn't fail. You are sitting there fighting against a whole evolutionary system and probably, depending how old you are, 10 or 20 years of social programming. Because you're going into battle with literally two subconscious systems. One you cannot change, which is the fact that your body is predisposed to like this stuff. When you eat it, it releases nice feel-good hormones, right? And then... You come along and you've we've probably food for a lot of people is associated with comfort, warmth, happy family. So if you're feeling flat and upset, you're far more likely to reach for food because A, your body is programmed to want it and make you feel good. And B, you've learned in this lifetime to associate it with positive things. So when you go into you go to try and to modify these behaviors you're actually fighting a system which is incredibly strong it doesn't mean you can't do it but it what it does mean is i don't want you to see yourself as a failure when you're going to battle with it and perhaps all the time don't win so when we talk about programming mm. the unconscious part of us the bit that we've been given the evolutionary or cultural or social thing that we've been given something i can identify mm. is this feeling of um, or people saying it, oh, I'm feeling incredibly naughty. I might have, yeah. insert whatever the word is. We'll just keep using donut for the sake okay. of this episode. Could be ice right? bun. But um, yeah, it could be a nice, oh, I love an ice <laughs> um, <but yeah. laughs> Do you know, I have to say a couple of years ago, during lockdown, actually, I gave up sugar. Oh, right. And it was really hard, but I thought this is the time to, yeah, to do it. Definitely. So I stopped eating sugar um and like processed things so pizza bases and all that sort of stuff that all went and on my daily walk i noticed for the first time ever that my daily walk went past um a very well-known brands industrial kitchen baking brands industrial kitchen i had never noticed this place i'd been going on walks around here for maybe 15 years of my life wow so what triggered it never ever noticed I'd seen a sign, never paid any attention to it. What I noticed when I gave up sugar was how the air smelled as I walked past this bakery, 
which was the smell of the top of an iced finger, you know, that oh, yes. particular, just, yeah. just sugar, mm, sugar with water. Yeah. And the air smelt of it. And I used to walk past and just breathe really deeply. <laughs> but that's that evolutionary system going again. It's noticing now. It's not. It's noticing. Oh, look, that's where it is. And smells one of those fascinating senses because it's although you breathe in through your nose, it's actually processed right at the base of your brainstem. So it's really okay. low down in the programming system someone like me would look at. Um, it's also why smells attached to memory. There is definitely this thing that I've noticed people doing, and I didn't grow up with this. So um, as we've discussed before, I am first generation um, British Pakistani. We don't really have it. We didn't have in my house this idea of I'm going to be really naughty and have this whatever that food group was. But I did grow up with it in the culture I was raised in, which is Britain. I'm born and raised in in London. And I noticed friends, mums, and some dads, but mainly mums, talking about being naughty and having a piece of chocolate, uh, whatever it might be, eating it anyway, sometimes eating it and hiding, but always announcing that they were going to do it and telling everybody how bad they were being by by doing it. And that that programming is really interesting for me because... When we talked about doing this episode, I thought that's the thing. That's the that's the nub for me is that we are we feel guilty for eating something. So this is a whole load of unpacking, which has or unprogramming or breaking down into its separate constituent programs, which have far more to do with societal norms of how someone's expected to see themselves and act than they probably are to do with the evolutionary programming. Right. So it's about control. It, whose control? The control of. No, actually. So I, I think it would be about, so if we look at images, so you'd only control your weight if you were told that thin was beautiful. Which we are. Right. So that's the program you're responding to. And the fact that through yeah. most of well, for as long as I can remember, we have very few images of women or men that are taken through someone else's gaze. So man has taken photographs of women, has painted women for five, six, seven hundred years. And they've painted us with rolls and being soft and having tummies and little bellies. Oh, and but they did, but it's also... But it's, it's always a particular gaze. So... Um, Literally, we are, so it's now the 25th of September, 20, uh, 2000, sorry, 2023. Literally, so there's a very famous, or she is now, Renaissance painter called Artemisia Gentilista. And one of, and she would paint women looking like, we've just said, so far softer, very similar to um, a lot of her compatriots. So we were talking around Charles I. But she represented her emotions or the female protagonists in her paintings and the emotions on their faces in a very, very different way. And literally say this uh, this week, the um, royal household have just found, 
been not in a skip, but it's been in a loft for a very long time. A brand new, a newly discovered Gentilista, um, Artemisia Gentilista picture that she apparently wrote on the uh, wrote. Listen to me. No, she painted it, dear, uh, under the patronage <laughs> of Charles I. And it's it's and I forget the exact names of the story it's based on, but oh, it's Susanna in the garden where two men are because she's been bathing. And two older gentlemen are trying to uh, want to do the things boys want to do. And in a, in every other version of that painting that isn't painted by a woman, she's done as an alluring figure. When Artemisia painted it, she looked shocked and horrified. Same story. Almost you can see if you look at the... Um, painted the figures they've either in the same colors the, the gentlemen are in the same cloaks i was looking at this yesterday but her facial features are completely different when she's painted by a woman because i said it's shock and horror and i need to get away she's not presented as alluring and uh this is okay and i think that's but she's one of the only female artists uh and we have from that time considering um all of the other um, artists which were around at that period and the fact that so much of what we see that we've been told that women should look like has never been painted by a woman. Mm. And it's not just physically how you look, but how a situation would represent your emotion or interaction at that stage. And we don't. You know, I, I think my formative years, when I would have spent far too much money on magazines... Um, but loved looking at the pictures, like Vogue. I, like, I, I still like a glossy magazine. I want to stroke it. Feels yeah, nice. me too. Like say, like a Vogue or a Red or um, Cosmo. And mm -hmm. in the 80s, with the rise of the long-legged Amazonic supermodels, yep. none of those pictures we ever saw was taken by a woman. No, so you're, yeah, that's quite right. So the gaze you're taught to gaze in and therefore how you see yourself has never been done from your perspective, your perspective. So going back to, hello, I've been naughty. you only feel naughty if you're doing something that you think you shouldn't be doing because you're not conforming to a body image you've been given. So therefore you shouldn't eat fat. And there was a, also, I'm going to go on now on side, but it knocks onto one of those social narratives as well. There used to be an advert around, I think it was in the 70s actually, naughty but nice. Yes. Which, as we know, those things start to become how we think about stuff. And I'm quite sure it was about cream buns, something with cream in it. And it, it ran for a very long time. And I don't know, but perhaps then you'd have to look at the uh, social anthropology. But perhaps then we started to use the word naughty but nice, because I would have thought with rationing after the Second World War, loads of people haven't had anything sweet. So that's a social history yes. question. So I think we're looking at a number of things. You're looking at image and how you've been taught to think about yourself, why you would attach that so as long as thin is what you're supposed to be, and then that goes on to where that gaze comes from, but also what was the social anthropology of how we looked at what those things were at the time. So the number of sets of glasses, if we remember all this, yeah. these glasses give us, like we... Um, no, like we know our original set of glasses we've ever looked at ourselves within is our value. We keep layering mm. on these glasses with how we look at things. And if I broke that whole thing down, you've got first your illusionary set of glasses. I like fat and sugar. Then you've got how I've been taught to think about myself. 
you know, am I am I supposed to, is thin beautiful, right? Which which we've received from a patriarchal culture. Um, then you then you look at what the social history, social anthropology of that time is, and how one looks at those things. You start to see that one small phrase is built up from a whole load of things that we've been programmed to think and believe. I remember seeing an advert for a diet in Vogue that came back out again really recently. Really? What was which that? Was that you, yeah, so you start the day with a black coffee. And I think it was like a boiled egg. Oh, yeah. And then at lunch, it was half a bottle of Chardonnay and a Oh, this salad is a 70s one, isn't it? I remember this. And then for dinner, it was the remainder of the bottle of Chardonnay and a, like a chicken breast or something. And that's, you know, that's the way to be... <laughs> to have the, that body and um, whether it's as obvious as that or not I think that kind of mentality still very much sits within the diet culture in some parts of of our societies and how you should eat and how you shouldn't eat and what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat and this idea of naughty and but nice as you say or good and bad and what did Kate Moss say oh, nothing tastes as good as nothing feels. nothing feel nothing tastes as good as thin feels I mean, that's hilarious because yeah. we both know the quote, right? Yeah. Um, and naturally, body type, she was obviously very slim. I mean, that that whole... Yeah. So it went from the Amazonian sort of um, Linda Evangelista and, oh, God, Christine Turlington and that lot in the 80s to... What was it called? Heroin chic in the 90s. It was called heroin chic, which, yes, it which was. Which means was... Uh, I mean, personally, I'd have never... Uh, I've never knownly been skinny in my entire life. I'm just not that shape. But but it's it's this thing of being about choice, writing your own script, about being empowered. It's not that these things are done to you. They are part of the situation and programming around you. And therefore, this is where you, although driving that choice can be difficult, you do have a choice. But I think it's really hard to... I suppose the other thing is knowing you've got a choice matters. Well, that's probably the the main the main thing for most areas, mm. isn't it? Like I I certainly grew up having my weight commented on very openly and very freely by every single person around me. In your family as well? Um, oh, it was my family. Oh, wow, wow. Okay, we didn't ever it, do that. And I think it's I think it's very common sadly in some cultures and some areas within some cultures where there is a feeling that the group can for your own good tell you things that are highly damaging because they're trying to help you or better you so my my whole life my weight's been commented on and my size has been commented on I've had advice given to me that I've never asked for. I've been told not to take that much rice, not to have that much um, bread. I have been told that I would look nicer if I was a bit thinner. I have been, I went overseas once and met some family. And the first thing one of my family says, a member said to me was, well, I'd come out of the airport and they said, oh my goodness, you've put on weight. Hadn't, didn't even get a hello and it's a real part of, sadly, a lot of cultures where it's not subtle. They don't need for it to, they don't feel like it needs to be subtle. 
when you are thin, when I have been acceptably skinny, I was in the throes of not very healthy time with food. And I kept being told how well I looked. And other periods of my life when if I have had, you know, a lot of stress, I and I haven't turned away from from, e- from eating because of nausea or whatever, people have said, I know you're going through a hard time, but you look great. Which is incredibly damaging and can be incredibly damaging if you are not, if you haven't come out of some of that programming, which I believe I have done. So this this topic probably is 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 quite an uh, an important one for me because I think young men and women all over the world have to, where if they do want to examine where their thoughts about their size or their shape or their weight might come from, don't get me started on BMI. It is pervasive and it is insidious and it might have come from as we talked about before your your primary caregivers the people in your home and then society underlines that and underpins that and and if you're fancied at school or not fancied at school or picked for sports or not picked for sports you know there's so many little little ways in which all these things become stamped into your conscious or subconscious mind as fact yeah totally and it's a lot about this um and why why you and I decided to do this it's it's a lot about the fact that a no one does it to you on purpose b so much about how you think about yourself is constructed from other areas not from your head but how you think how you then feel and what you do is you acting in a way you're programmed and the fact that you can look at yourself in a different way if you start to understand that these are just programs. And I always, when I f- first started to work this out, I found it quite liberational because um, it's not my fault. I didn't do this. I had almost the same feeling over this stuff I had when someone diagnosed me with dyslexia when I was at university. So I must have been 19. I'm quite actually profoundly dyslexic. And uh, my lecturer, for whatever reasons, a chap called John Annette, sat me down, made me do these tests, and then afterwards said, yeah, I thought so, thought so. Really, really, you, you've got no working memory at all. Yeah, so of course you're going to find all of these things difficult. It's not your fault, you know. You just don't have, you know, you've got no working memory. So, you know, he, he then proceeded to give me a long list of things I wouldn't be very good at, from A, shaping letters, to be remembering things and I remember crying all the way back to our hall we were staying at the time because it was the first time someone had told me it wasn't my fault my whole school career they told me it was my fault I couldn't do those things and it didn't matter how hard I damn well tried I couldn't do them and I think it's really powerful on the other side to know that if you are not conforming to whatever the standard body type is for your society, um, and especially if that is larger, let's say, that it isn't your fault. There are lots of, there are ways that your brain thinks about food that impact how you feel when you eat food that have then been attached in this lifetime here to a lot of social programming, as we've said. And therefore you act and behave and feel. So if I eat that donut, and I 
done this. I still do this to myself. I caught myself doing it to myself on Friday. My daughter came home with some great cakes and they were really delicious. And she cut them, there were three cakes, so she cut them all into three. And before I'd known it, I'd eaten two thirds. And then I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Because being postmenopausal, you know, it, it, it's it's quite easy to put on weight, believe me. I'd look at things and I feel like they are gone my hips. And I was like, oh, you are stupid. Oh, yeah, of course you did. Why have I done that? I've heard people, women my age, say they'd rather drink their calories than eat them. Yeah, I've heard people say that too. <laughs> Isn't I it nasty like... though? And it's the fact that I I mm-hmm. know all of this shit and I still sit there and I'm sat in this amphitheatre in my own head having a go at myself. I am literally being nasty to myself. And my daughter was doing that to herself the other day. I'm like, this is so sad. So this actually is a really interesting point. And it came about with a friend of mine who, when she had her daughter, suddenly started to be really aware of her self-talk. She's got two two boys already. And she said, I'd never really considered the way I spoke to myself when it came to the boys. And I don't know why, but, you know, she said, I, I, I sort of didn't but I really considered how I did it now that I've got a daughter because I recognize she's looking to me for an example of how to speak to herself. She said, but actually the boys are doing the same thing. You know, let, let's be frank here. And she said, but I, I suddenly became just hyper aware of the language I used, the way I accept myself, when I chastise myself, what I chastise myself for. If I'm doing it out loud, if I'm, she said, and the, and, and the way it really played out for her was with her relationship with food. She said, I just, I just wanted to make sure that when I ate, I did so in a way that was balanced, but that was really loving toward myself and trying not to use words like, so we didn't ha- I didn't have this word growing up, which is why her and I were talking about it. I didn't have this idea of treats or food that you were allowed should you do something and foods that were taken away oh, if you okay. didn't do something. Oh, okay, yes. Food is motivation. I didn't grow up- yeah, I didn't grow up with that. She very much did. We were trying to unpick whether it was something to do with post-war Britain and sugar being a scarcity. And then when it came back, it was treated differently, whether that's always been the case. We obviously don't know. But I've never experienced my mum saying, you can have that if you do this. Or you can have, you won't have that if you don't have this. They were different. It was more about the time of day that you ate Okay, that's, that's really interesting because now, um, so as a society, if you look at this, the anthropology, Pological social history of British food, it's gone through some really interesting cycles. One thing that's acknowledged about um, English food is we've always had, before a lot of people, a lot of sugar, because obviously from the colonialism, whether that's right or wrong or indifferent, we imported a lot of sugar. Uh, we also have a uh, climate that dairy is really good, so you get cream, right? And some of the most ancient or oldest written down desserts in England are all about sugar and cream and alcohol. So possets or... Um, God bless it. Uh, which is... It's a happy combo. Yeah, so a posset is, is um, rennet and cream and sugar. And yet you can... I think it's a, it's not a flummery. Um, but there's another thing where you take cream and set it with alcohol. And one of the original recipes is literally someone's doing the cow into a tin and pouring sack what was known as sack which is sweet wine into it and it sets 
I think as a culture, England has quite a lot of desserts and sweet and sugar stuff. However, and we've we invented the biscuit, even though that's French definition, yeah. biscuit, quite twice cooked. And there's you know it's there's real history of biscuits and how they were used on long voyages. I could go on. Another obsession of mine is obviously food. Um, but I think <laughs> not about. I think what's truly interesting about this is. I think there is a thing in English culture that, and it's for a long time, that sugars, treats, sweets, puddings. Um, the, you know, the, the original puddings are literally held in muslin and boiled steamed puddings, and they go back centuries. Sweetmeats are uh, Elizabethan in origin, I believe, and the ability to pound sugar with almonds to create marchpane or marzipan. Uh, you know, that it's either argued it developed in England or Italy. And the Italians actually supposedly invented ice cream stolen from the Chinese across the Silk Road. But sugar, definitely, definitely British. And although my parents aren't English either, we were brought up with it being a treat. And I don't know if that's Jewish background or not. And I remember my grandma. Literally, she used to drink her tea um, in a clear smoked, not clear, but a smoked glass cup, tea cup with lemon. Mm-hmm. And if she was feeling black naughty, tea. yes, black, no milk, don't be stupid. Yeah. She yep. would put sugar in it. Yeah. But these are the things that become received, programmes received wisdom. We can't see ourselves without those being part of how we think about something. And this is this yeah. is the only thing. I mean, we could talk about this forever. I can definitely talk about food forever. But it's that knowing that that is a programmed system and you therefore can choose. And you can choose two things. You can choose to see yourself differently and choose to see yourself as a Renaissance model. You know, a lot of those, uh, you know, it's only since the 60s, actually, that we've considered Guinea was pretty. Most of the time, if you were larger or not skinny, is because the fact you were rich. So it used right. to be a status symbol. And that still symbol. exists in South African societies, yeah. doesn't it? It's a status symbol. That still exists. And you can understand why, you know, you would, if you are, if food is scarce, to be overweight shows that you have an abundance. It's a really simple. Totally. And for most of human history, 7.5 million years of being hominoids. There wasn't that much food around, guys. This just wasn't. I mean, in some respects, we're, we're, it's one of those, it's, yeah, it is actually, it's a nice problem to have when you're not starving. Oh, it's a wonderful problem to have. It's a wonderful problem. So, I've got two questions. Go on, then. What flavour donut <gasps> are you doing? No, you see, I have to own up. I don't like donut. Okay. I really, so... Not at all. No. None of them. I, I've tried donuts. I've made them myself. I don't like the taste of fat and sugar together for some reason. I quite happily eat a cream cake. Okay. Or a Victoria sponge. With fresh cream in yeah, it? Yeah, I, like, I do like cream. I, I like my fat. 
I like butter. I like cream. I like clotted yep. cream. Thank you, being in Devon. Mm. Talking about that, we get unpasteurized clotted cream down here. And now I've tasted it. I go, that's what people have been going on about for years. <laughs> this is this yeah. is just like delicious. That's um, but no. So when it comes to a donut, you can keep them. Actually, you'll walk past a plate of donuts, but a but a, a cream tea. Oh no, cream tea. I'd, I'd have. And can I please have raspberry jam, not strawberry, because it's slightly tartar. Um, and yeah. can I make the scones and have? I I wouldn't put butter on them, um, because I don't like the taste of butter and cream together. There you go. But my husband will put butter jam and then cream on them wow yes devon clotted cream is delicious what's what's yours what's your favorite yeah i mean i'll take a donut um i i'm kind of happy with any sort of donut if i'm honest i don't really have a i don't know if i've got a favorite we used to have a market near where i lived that would on a sunday have fresh donuts so you'd go and you'd watch them like pop mm. pop pop them out of the machine and go into the oil and then they'd, they'd bring them out and then they would like coat them in sugar and they had another thing where they had cinnamon mm. so it was like a cinnamon sugar yeah hot oh no i can see um, those like churros as well you can get in uh spain a bit like churros yeah, yeah. so this sort of that like this round ring donut but i'm just as partial to a fresh jam or a custard i'm not going to ever turn down a custard donut love a custard donut and when a very well-known brand of American donuts opened up not far away from, from me, they used to do this thing where when the conveyor belt had just made the fresh batch, they'd put a sign on outside and you would get a, a hot donut while you were waiting for your order. Um, and so the the plain sugar glazed... Yeah, oh, you can hear it just, in your voice. Yeah. You see, I'd, for me, it's uh, that sort of or would be... Um, vinegar and hot chips oh yeah. does something i mean we know these are you know very base primeval sort of um things responding to so but you said you had another question what's the other one how do we come out of as i ask yeah, i think time. every how episode at some one? point and sometimes a couple of times in the hmm. episode what are the steps that we can take to try and come out of this programming identifying it and then i think what's yeah. our kindness to ourselves what's our, yeah, what's, our what's our step i think the first one we have to do with this one before you do anything else is be kind to yourself because it's not your fault, right? Because as soon as you stop blaming yourself and stop that horrible internal self-talk, you have a chance to build something differently. And that's the best place to start is it's not your fault. It's how I'm programmed. But just even just sitting with that, I know is really difficult. Then I think you need to look at what you do and decide if you're an emotional eater, as in, does do you eat when you're not hungry because it makes you just feel better? So do you, you know, do you put on weight when you're stressed? Do you do you, do you reach for food to literally make yourself feel better? And again. That's about knowing that's a dopamine-driven system. And choosing to swap that for something else that is a dopamine-driven system, right? Whether it's 
And these are usually doing things that the brain likes. So doing new stuff, believe it or not, your brain likes new things. So going to read something differently, doing something, exercise. I know people always say it, but it is. It's not the fact that it's exercise. It's the fact that if you work your body, it releases nice hormones. But just those things. Still, for me, the most powerful thing is, number one, to realise it wasn't me. I didn't fail. I didn't fail. And then to go, I personally, I'm not an emotional eater. I just like the taste of things. <laughs> I seriously like what something tastes like. And that obviously then does set off really nice things in my head. But I'm more of, I personally need to know when to stop. Um, and the third one I noticed I do is if someone else is eating or my partner's eating something and they offer it me again, cause we're inveterate people pleasers, I feel I can't say no. So if someone's made stuff for you, I find it really difficult to go, no, I don't want that. Or I've had enough. Cause I think that's either disrespectful or I am not maintaining being in with the in group. There's something very cultural about that too, isn't there? Like I remember as a child when we'd go to Pakistan and it was a case of if somebody offers you something in their home, you you always take it because to have a, a guest, to have a visitor to your home is something that we really revere. And so a lot of effort is made when someone comes to your home and for you to turn down the refreshments that they've provided is, is actually incredibly rude. And so if you were go if we were there and we were going to see a few people that day because we were visiting for a few weeks and we didn't have maybe a huge amount of time, but we were going to catch up with family and friends and things everywhere we went, we had to eat something. Um, wow. But you were, you absolutely couldn't say no. But again, that's a program. That's a social work behaving and you feel like you can't say no. But absolutely. then that that sort of lives with you <laughs> everywhere. And there's, there's actually one other thing I'd like to mention here, which is a, one of the latest pieces of research, which is about, does it matter how that all of the salt, sugar, fats, proteins are all combined, right? Because reductionists, as in people who reduce down to the littlest things, would say it doesn't. You can have exactly the same and your body will behave the same way. But just as your mind is a programme, your body's programmed as well. And for most of our this organic carbon-based systems life on this earth, we haven't had manufactured processed food. But there was some latest, really like a couple of weeks ago, this reductionist scientist in America was um, talking to someone from Pepsi-Cola. And they said, oh, have you seen all this latest thing about not eating highly processed food isn't a load of rubbish? Can you do some research on this for us? And this chap said, yeah, of course, because can't make a difference so he literally so he had two two cohorts and they were all matched etc you know it's good science right and this this lot had the same calories with the same type uh, with uh, the same nutrients and protein carbohydrate but very highly processed in their diet and fed it for two weeks and this and the other group had it all from non-highly processed food so it was all, um, you know, instead of it was a potato instead of a McDonald's fry, but exactly the same. After two weeks, the highly processed food group had not only put on a kilo, they ate more. Even though it was exactly the same constituents, they ate more to feel satisfied and they put on weight. Whereas the group in the unhighly processed food one hadn't. And then they swapped them and 
the reverse happened. So the which like when we discuss your human brain is a system, it has developed over time. The human body is a system which has developed over time and it's developed in a way to process food that is literally in its not natural state, but it's not been hugely manufactured and it doesn't have a load of things added to it, which you can't even know what they mean, let alone how to pronounce them or read them. And he was really shocked, this guy, because as far as he's concerned, it shouldn't matter. Because apparently a protein is a protein, whether it's come from an unadulterated, unpasteurized milk or it's the same processed milk powder. With water added, it's the same thing. Not according to your body, it's not. So it's not just how you've been taught to think about food. It's the fact that your body has been designed to process food in a specific way. Oh, why ever not? Just knowledge. All we've ever wanted here was that you, if you then go and choose something, you chose, right? You're not doing it because it's... You didn't choose to do it. And I think what illustrates beautifully about this one is eating a donut and how you feel about a donut and how you talk to yourself after you've eaten a donut is a product of a number of different glasses that you would wear or programs that you've put on. It depends on the body's evolutionary reaction to what's in the donut, whether that's how it wants you to eat it or literally how it processes it. You've then got the level of how you've been taught to see yourself, whether it's thin is good, or whether fat, uh, being larger, not fat, it always sounds negative, is good. And whose gaze that has been arbitrated in and how that also then, or perhaps looked at as control, but also to how your family and how you were brought up to think about food and how you were brought up to think about hospitality and how you sit with other people and eat. So when you sit there and tell yourself off, think first for us stop for a second and go hmm this is more complicated than that be kind be kind thank you Ginny this has been another really interesting thought-provoking episode for sure it has look at us Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming on the journey with with me, with us. Well, you're the explorer, Marheen. I'm off. I'm bashing into the undergrowth of our brains. <laughs> and into all that programme, prodding around, gallivanting within that programming. What we want to do, as we've always done with this, is help you understand why you feel, the thoughts that you do, and then the behaviour behind that. So you have a choice of how you behave and who profits by it. And if it's not you, and it's not humankind, then stop and think and go, who's controlling? Who's behind my steering wheel? So I want to invite you back, whether you're on a walk, going for the train, on that commute, taking a bath even, cooking, driving a car. Wherever you find yourself, come and find us. We will be waiting. <laughs>